Hi everyone, it's Brie here. It's been a few weeks since we've posted a podcast and that's for a number of reasons. First of all, Beck and I have both been very busy uh, balancing our freelance lives. And second of all, it's been hard to do this podcast and be immersed in the pain and the frustration and the heartbreak that we and so many other Australians have experienced this year. Um, We just needed a little break for a few weeks to just breathe. (laughs) Beck's currently trying to get home for Christmas and with the new strain that's been discovered and Australia threatening to close its borders, uh, it's a really stressful time and it's a reminder that we are still in the thick of this. It's still not easy to get home I've chosen not to go home for Christmas and that was a really difficult choice because part of me feels like I should be racing home as soon as possible Um, but to be honest I just couldn't face the disappointment and the heartbreak if anything went wrong and so I've decided to wait until April and just hope that um, everyone I love is there in April This episode holds a really important discussion about vaccination equality. Although it was recorded a few weeks ago, we do believe that these podcast conversations are important documentation. If you feel like some of the things we talk about may seem outdated or things may have changed since we recorded this episode, bear with us. Um, We want to make sure that we're documenting the process along the way. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Australians Abandoned, the podcast where we share the stories of Australians stuck overseas, and in this case, also within the country during the pandemic. I'm Brie, and when I go back to Australia, I'm going to cuddle my new niece, Adeline, who was born a few weeks ago. I've only seen her through a screen, but I am in love. On today's episode, we speak to Nicola, an Australian stuck in Ireland and a member of the Reconnect Australia team. Nicola left Australia in January 2021 after receiving an exemption to take a dream job in Ireland that had been put on hold for her since the beginning of the pandemic. Because of the border closures, she has not seen her husband, who still lives in Australia, for 10 months. Nicola is a scientist and currently works on a vaccine project for parasites, not viruses. She always trusted that the scientists working on vaccines would find a way to protect us as soon as possible but was very naive in believing that the Australian government would do the same for all Australians. Nicola spent much of her PhD working in developing countries in Southeast Asia, and as a result is highly aware of the issues facing stranded Australians in less developed parts of the world. In this episode, we discuss the problems facing Australians who have been unable to access an approved vaccine, the dangers of public shaming during a pandemic, and the need for a sincere acknowledgement from the government about the sacrifice that abandoned Australians have made during this time. Let's get into it. Let me come home. I'm so excited to do this. Like, <laughs> listening to your podcasts is just like super therapeutic. (laughs) Doing this podcast has really helped me to articulate how I feel. So now when someone asks me, oh my God, how do you feel that like Australia is not letting you come home? I'm like, well, let me tell you (laughs) because I've heard other people's stories. So I am ready to talk. I think I told you in my email that I took up running as like a therapeutic activity to keep myself Mm. sane during lockdown and, and being stuck here in Ireland. And now I've started listening to your podcast when I run and it's just like two therapeutic activities at once. It's very calming. But when I'm running, I'm like, yeah, like, well said, like (laughs) to myself. (laughs) Usually we start off with a, when I return to Australia, I'm going to, do you have one of these? Yes, I've listened to your um, podcast and heard this before. And also, I think I just generally thought about this even before I knew of your podcast. When I return to Australia, after, you know, doing all this stuff, reuniting with family and loved ones and my 
three cats who I'm going to absolutely like swoosh to death. I am going to, I think I'm going to go out to the bush a bit and just like, I love a bushwalk. There are no trees in Ireland. (laughs) The British stole them all. Mm. So I'm going to go out to maybe the Blue Mountains or even Karingai Chase National Park and I'm going to go for a bloody bushwalk and just experience the sounds and the smells of Australia again because I miss that. It's very therapeutic. I really, like, enjoy being out in nature and it's just been really crap here because, first of all, the weather's terrible Mm. but also – it's it's not a very connected place. It's really hard to get out of the city. And the first five months I was here, we couldn't leave the city anyway. We were stuck in lockdown with a five kilometer radius. So yeah, I really miss that. I'm really looking forward to doing that again. Let me go. When the pandemic hit, I was actually on my honeymoon, I had just um, married my partner of 11 years at that point in Edinburgh. Wow. It was amazing. And we were traveling around Scotland in February of 2020. And then we flew over to Iceland for about 10 days. And um, Scott Morrison started talking about, we're going to shut the borders. Like it, my mom called me freaking out. You're going to get locked down in the country. Like you got to come home now. And I mean, even if we wanted to get home on that day, we couldn't have anyway because we're in a remote part of Iceland. Um, so we just kind of went, nah, it'll be right. We'll just we'll keep up the plan we've got. We've only got a couple more days left and we'll just get home um, as we had always planned. Um, and so we did. And so on the 18th of March, we flew into Sydney airport and luckily we got in two days before they instituted the hotel quarantine rule. Um, if I recall correctly, although I wouldn't be surprised if my recollection was damaged by my trauma, but when we arrived in Sydney airport, there were all these people at the airport telling us like, um, you know, just so you're aware, you have to isolate at home for two weeks blah 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 like how long are you going to be in Australia so I had just I had just finished um my PhD in January of that year and I just finished my first full-time um job contract and we'd gone and gotten married so I was like high on life like I was having the best time and I was supposed to come back to Australia after my wedding and then fly out to Ireland shortly afterwards and start a um, a postdoc in a lab that had essentially headhunted me like they created the position for me and it's the best lab in my field and it was all going really well wow. but then I came home and I said I got stuck at home and for a really long time I was quite uncertain like my boss was like you know it's up to you like you know we don't want to put you in a position that you're going to regret we're happy to wait for you and so a lot of time in that sort of year I spent spiraling back and forth between you know I don't know if I should do this or like I should definitely go it'll be fine Mm. um and it actually started taking an enormous toll on my mental health I had a terrible time in 2020 and eventually just decided I can't stay here unemployed languishing like this I'm I'm gonna go vaccines are in development now they're looking really promising. There's a bunch of them. I'm, I'm now currently a vaccine scientist, um, not for viruses, but for parasites. So I, I had a bit of faith. I was like, the, the scientists have got this. I think mm-hmm. it's okay if I leave. I'm going to go. And so in January of 2021, so January this year, I, um, I left Sydney and I flew out to Ireland. And I left my husband behind um, because he didn't have a job over here and I thought it would be cruel to force him. He's a landscaper. Mm-hmm. Um, to move to a country where it, it rains and is dark and cold almost all the time. So I, I left him behind and we were sort of always planning that sort of every six months one of us would travel to the other person, but like, you know, three months out of sync. So we'd see each other quite regularly. And so that's when I came to Galway in January this year. And the week I left Sydney, Galway was, or Ireland, the country, had the highest rate of infection in the world. So I went from somewhere that had pretty much no COVID. We had a little Christmas spike in Sydney, but almost no COVID to a place where I just felt like it was everywhere. It was all around me. Everything I did. I was so paranoid when I first got here. I was going a little bit mental. Yes. Um, And then I ended up 
spending five the first five months in Ireland in lockdown, unable to go anywhere or do anything. I was really lucky because our lab had a COVID project at the time um, for diagnostics. We were able to still go to the lab, but actually the last month has been the first time that our, our facility, the university I'm at, has been reopened for staff and students since I got here. So now I'm going through a whole weird experience of seeing what it's actually like to work with others instead of just my little team so it's been a bit weird but because of that because I chose to leave in January this year I've had a lot of vitriol directed towards me from people that don't understand the situation that basically tell me you knew what you were doing you chose to leave you don't deserve to come back so who um, are these people and, and in oh. what context would they be talking to you in this way? They're, I mean, they're just mostly people online that don't understand um, whether it's like on Facebook or Twitter or, you know, sometimes I've been on the news a couple of times. Um, they just sort of, and, and generally not even necessarily directed towards me all the times, just at other people, the, the general sentiment, and I'm sure you guys are aware, mm-hmm. among many Australians, purely I think because they're misinformed, is that we had a choice in March 2020. Prime Minister said, come home, and you didn't, so that's on you. Even comments that weren't sort of directed towards me personally, just like the general sentiment of people back home, like they always tell you never read the YouTube comments, right, or never read the Facebook comments. It is true because that stuff would just make you feel like you have no value as a person. Um but also I think I should say that, you know, as a scientist and as, as someone who's now working on a vaccine project, I never doubted that scientists would have a solution to this. And it's just what they have done is as close as science gets to a miracle. Like it is incredible just the many, many lives that they have saved by developing several really great vaccines in such a short amount of time. But I guess I was quite naive to assume that the Australian government would also be as intent on protecting Australians, you know, not just those onshore, but all Australians, including, you know, expats and and, mm-hmm. and migrants and visa holders. Um, because really, at the end of the day, I wasn't wrong in leaving Australia in January. A vaccine was available and in people's arms very shortly after that. the people that stopped me from coming home were the politicians and the people that have kept me separated from my husband for the last 10 months were the politicians. And I'm not saying that what they did didn't protect people back home. It certainly saved a lot of lives. And initially, yes, I was 100% for it. I thought that locking people out was the best cause of action at the time. Mm. But once vaccines became readily available, I don't really understand just this this narrative that they perpetuated against people stranded overseas that we are we are bringing the disease with us and we are trying to hurt everyone back home by trying to just you know get back to our country um Mm. I think people sort of forget that the people that are getting hurt back home are our friends and family as well we don't want them to get COVID as much as the next person and I think that the way that our our situation has been sold back home is it's quite it's offensive or certainly but it's also disgusting the the way they pit Australians against each other like this Mm. it's and it's quite heartbreaking to see someone who's always been you know very you know I've I've sold Australia to the world I've spent a lot of time overseas and I'm always telling people how great of a country it is and now I sit here and I think you know, why are they painting us this way? We're not criminals. We're just, we all want to see our family and our friends. And and again, I, I'm one of the very lucky ones. I've had a job this whole time. I've had a roof over my head this whole time. I have been well. I haven't been sick. None of my family have been, you know, very sick. It's, it's incredible to see just how hard it has been for some people and yet Australians still sit back and say, oh, but, you know, you don't deserve it or you should have come home back in, in March 2020, which, as I was sort of saying, you guys know, wasn't actually the advice that the government gave us. They said shelter in place if it's safe to do so and we'll get you home soon. And then Scott Morrison said, we'll get you home by Christmas 2020. But even if that was the advice that they gave to come home back then, which it, which it wasn't, 
I think it's just hilarious that people on shore seem to think that stranded Australians or Australians abroad would make a decision and uproot their lives, you know, like that. Let me go. What were the requirements for you that you needed to fulfill to be able to leave the country and, and like finally take your dream job? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I was quite lucky. Like technically I had to, to sign an exemption request saying that I wasn't going to ask for help to come home and that I was staying out for more than three months and, and all of those sorts of things. It was actually quite a scary document to sign. I don't remember anymore the exact details of it, but it was something like I relinquished my right <laughs> to, to sort of request help should anything happen to me, not alone, not just, you know, like the pandemic, but just sort of any horrible event happen. God, we have a nuclear war. But, um, but I also think that, I mean, one of the requirements was that I had a permanent job and proof that I was moving overseas um, for an extended period. But I know also other, other Australians that were in the same position as I was that didn't get their exemptions approved. And I just think that was really interesting because it just seemed to be a bit random um I don't know so yeah it was I definitely had to sign um or at least apply for an exemption to leave and then sign away some of my uh rights I know that Australia doesn't have a bill of rights but definitely yeah signed a dubious piece of paper um and then I and then I was allowed out but I mean what I think it was yesterday or the day before the government's finally gotten rid of that requirement. But the fact that at some point a few months ago, they also made people who were normally resident overseas sign the same thing. It's just madness. What? Mm. I know that they were trying to stem the amount of people coming so that they would then sort of stem the amount of people going into the quarantine system. But it just seems so absurd that they could sort of put that on people like oh you don't normally live here but you want to come and visit family and friends maybe they're dying by the way you might not be able to leave again and go back to your job and life like whoa. that that announcement was kind of the catalyst that set that uh set this podcast in motion actually mm -hmm. because I think that was the final nail in the coffin for me where I was like they just don't want me to go back and and see my family like I I could go back and not be able to return to my husband not be yeah. able to return to my job and my home here. And yeah. that outraged me. I couldn't believe it. I felt so, um, <sighs> I just felt like obsolete. I felt yeah. totally um, excluded from being an Australian and just feel it. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm not going back to make money there. So they don't want me. They don't want yeah. the bother of me going into hotel quarantine. I'm just a hassle at this point. And mm. I was like, that's, I'm so angry about that. I mean, there's just been so many inexcusable decisions, right? Like for everyone at Reconnect Australia, which is by the way, like the cutest little group of just random Australians and expats um, overseas that are just like fed up of, of this yeah. just nightmare. We, we kind of, our catalyst was we got together once they slashed the caps like again and people started just having waves of flights being cancelled, which I just think, I mean, like I could talk about that for like an hour. <laughs> we don't have time to go into that. But I just think there have been so many decisions that are just like either they're blatantly racist, like, for example, when they made it illegal for anyone who had been in India for the previous two weeks to try and come home, mm. or, or they're just nonsensical. Honestly, did not realise how misguided my faith in the government was before this all happened. Like, I know that we've had serious issues in our treatment of, you know, foreigners in Australia for a long time. And even in terms of treating the way we treat our First Nations peoples, but just watching them do this to, to us, like, you know, the everyday Australians, it's just, I think it's just been really eye-opening, but it's just genuinely been gobsmacking. I, I don't have any trust in my government anymore. And I really, that's a quite a serious statement, right? Like I have no trust that if I need help, I can get it. That weighs really heavily on me. I think that I've heard so many expats who have been burnt time and time again by these rules sort of just say like, I don't want to go home anymore anyway. And it just that, that really tears me up inside. 
I, I just, I don't know how anyone can ever go overseas again or even want to migrate to Australia again with any sort of faith, you know? I know that we talk a lot, you know, a year ago or so about Donald Trump corroding, you know, the trust in America's democracy. What the Morrison government have done in Australia, I think is tantamount to that. They have made Australia an untrustworthy democratic player. Like we just can't believe that they'll have our best interests at heart anymore. And that's, that's a really heavy statement. Like, I'm not the type of person to pick up a pitchfork and rage or sort of rally against the government. I've never done anything like this before. And I just, it's really brought me to breaking point. It's horrible. Mm. There is a part of me, and I, I don't know how to say this without, like, skimmy patronising, and I don't mean it that way. But sometimes when I hear Australians overseas acting surprised by this and how governments have responded but also how the public has responded I sometimes feel like why why are you surprised what have have people not been paying attention um like the way that our lack of humanity in so many areas it's just like we thought that it wouldn't touch us and mm. now it's touching us and there's still so mm. many people back home who still don't think it will touch them and I just wonder what it will take, what it will take for people back home to realise that, like, this is something that affects them. I wish it didn't have to be that way. Your perspective is everything, right? So if you haven't been touched by this, I understand particularly the fact that, you know, we've been fighting to have these issues raised by the media in Australia because I don't think there's a lot of information out there that sort of tells our story. So if you don't have that input, maybe you don't understand I just think I don't wish our experience on any of them. I don't want them to have to learn mm. because they are stranded just how bad this is. Because mm. at the end of the day, I don't want anyone to go through this suffering. And as I said, you know, my experience has been not terrible. I mean, it's been shit, don't get me wrong. And I hate that I have to keep undermining my own, like, trauma by saying, like, mm. I was a lucky one. But I, I was a lucky one. I was not one of the many thousands of Australians that had to watch, you know, people get sick or die or, or be born or whatever over a screen because my country wouldn't let me back in. Um, I wasn't homeless. I had a job the whole time and I've only been locked out for, you know, 10 months only. What a ridiculous way to phrase that. But, you know, it's just I was a lucky one and yet I still don't want anyone to share my pain. And mm -hmm. even if that means that their perspective is broadened, um, I just wish that, you know, back home, the realities that are facing us were more wi widely known and, and were sort of told truthfully. Because, I mean, I think I've heard you guys say in your podcast before um, how you get those messages from friends and family that say like, oh, the borders are reopened. You can come home soon. When are you going to be home? Like, when are you booking flights? Yeah. When there yeah. are all those like ridiculous headlines that come out saying Australia's open, blah, blah, blah. And you get that frustration because you have to turn around and sort of say, no, like it's not the case, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. I just, as someone that was stranded with the whole rest of like the people that were stranded um, back before any concrete news was coming out about when borders would reopen or how they would reopen, that annoyed me. But I cannot imagine what it must be like now to be someone who wants to go into Queensland or South Australia or God forbid Western Australia, right? and see people coming into New South Wales and Victoria and have to watch some Australians get home and, and you still can't do it. And then there's the flip side of that coin, right? We can all leave the country now, anyone that's onshore in Australia, which includes temporary residents and visa holders. But re-entering the country is only allowed if you're a citizen or a permanent resident. So temporary residents and visa holders have been contributing sort of to the front lines in Australia in many essential industries, including in healthcare and have been in our hospitals helping us during our COVID response. And those people have been locked away from their families abroad for the last 20 months and now are watching people book holidays to wherever and they still can't go home and visit their family because they won't be allowed back in because they don't fit in the rules that all the rest of the strand Australians are trying to sort of get through. It's just, 
I can't imagine how that must feel because I, I nearly like had big arguments with friends and family because they kept sending me all these misleading headlines mm. and the truth really wasn't being told, the, 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 like the actual hurdles that we had to face and actually that we still have to face mm-hmm. um, were not common knowledge. It makes me feel really, really um, angry that people will be going on holidays before people will be reunited with their families like both ways, you know, people who need to leave Australia and people who are waiting to come home. I, it, it blows my mind that people will be having holidays before that happens. It blows my mind that that is the, the, the key story that the media is selling, right? Like you can go on a holiday, not that tens of thousands of Australians are still stranded. (laughs) Why is that the headline guys? Like that's heartless. Yeah. (laughs) Especially when, especially when you know, there's been this narrative, one of the narratives the whole time is that politicians, quite frankly, have supported, uh, have pushed, is that um, is that people are coming in and out on holidays. Yeah. That, like, yeah. that how their people overseas just come back home. Like, this isn't the time to just be flitting about around the world. And that's right. not what we were doing. No, and, now and actually... It's like, it's like, guys, go on holidays. You get to go. You get to go to Bali and to fuck up that nice culture again. I'm sure they're <laughs> going to be so glad. But also, I actually am one of those Australians that wants to like go on a holiday home. Like, I I'm only going home for six weeks, but it's not a holiday. I have no. a job here. I just want to see my family. I want to yeah. see my husband. I want to see my cats. Like, it's just, it's not, it's not a holiday. Like, I think it's just really heartless that they're selling these vital connections that we have like humans as a species need like familial connection they need to be able to touch and feel their loved ones and selling that concept of oh you're only going home for six weeks you're not a stranded Australian like that's that's awful yeah (laughs) so demeaning my mental health has suffered because of being stuck overseas and yet my experience is diminished because because I'm not permanently relocating home and I'm a, I'm mm. a you know, contributing member of the global society. <laughs> yeah. 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 Let me go. You have quite a unique perspective being in the world of public health and um as a scientist creating vaccines I'm wondering from your particular public health perspective what you've kind of observed and and maybe what you've seen that just has confused you or frustrated you yeah and I mean I'm gonna start off by sort of repeating first of all I'm not a viral scientist I work on parasites um and I certainly don't have a background in informing mass public health decisions. So I can't like really talk too much to that, but I can sort of give you um, a bit of what it's been like to sort of be a scientist and watch public policy decisions be made that don't agree with what the science is saying. So it's just, for me, it's been a real roller coaster of just uh, bewilderment and disbelief to watch this unravel in real time. Watch the incredible work that scientists have done because I will reiterate again that like what scientists did around the world to create not one, not two, but many very highly protective vaccines against COVID in such a short amount of time. And that's not because they were rushed. Let's be clear, they were not rushed. They, you know, we, we did due diligence, proper policy and procedures were followed really great safe process but it's it's those achievements were incredible and it has just been really shocking to see how that has been portrayed in the media and how public health decisions have been informed as a result right watching in real time at a global scale just people drop the ball left right and center and make decisions that are based like I don't know they're pulling them out of their ass sometimes I am pretty sure like I mean you're over in Europe with you know with me you know here we're living in a relatively free society these days like we don't have to wear masks outdoors we you know 
we can kind of pretty much like we can pretty much do anything and um yes globally the the cases are rising even in vaccinated populations but it it's not severe illness and death that's that's rising um but it has been it's it's been really interesting to watch unfold one thing that i cannot wrap my head around to this day and i don't think i will ever forgive forgive the people involved is the politicians and the health officers in Australia that sold AstraZeneca as if it was going to kill you. That is absolutely disgusting behaviour. It completely diminishes the work of, of women, actually, the women that did the AstraZeneca vaccine that saved countless lives and has, I think, actually cost lives back in Australia as well by convincing people that that vaccine was going to kill you is, is that's a huge disservice, like unbelievable disservice to the achievements of, of those women. Um, and I mean, I'm just going to go on a very brief tangent. I have spent um, a significant portion of my PhD working in um, Southeast Asia in, in many less developed countries and watching the way that we've sort of disparaged that vaccine and then now decided to stop producing it, even though we've only delivered 9% of the promised vaccines to the Asia Pacific, to countries that don't have access to the vaccines as readily as we do, that cannot produce them locally. It's, it's insular Australia at its best and it's just utterly disgusting. Um, it's, been, it's been really frustrating to watch. Um, so that's been really interesting and then i mean i'm not going to necessarily talk about particular policies that have occurred on um shore because there have been many good ones and many very bad ones and i i don't actually have the time and energy to, to dedicate much time of my life to understanding mm -hmm. them and dissecting them but i will say that at the moment one of the hurdles that is still facing Australians that are stranded abroad is getting their vaccines recognised in Australia. So I'm sure you're aware that currently Australia only recognises like a very small um, group of vaccines, um, mm -hmm. which means that many stranded Australians that don't didn't get one of those. So people that got like, for example, the Sputnik or the Sinopharm vaccines, because that was all they had access to, because mm -hmm. the Australian government locked them out and didn't give them any alternative they are now still considered stranded abroad because they can't come in through the quarantine free um, travel lanes into Victoria and New South Wales. And as a result of Australia reopening and as a result of these quarantine free restrictions coming into play, the quarantine spaces are being cut even further. So once from November 1st, I think only 210 people will be allowed into hotel quarantine in New South Wales. But there are still so many thousands of Australians that don't are not considered, you know, typically vaccinated that can't mm. come home, and it's actually getting harder for those people to come home. Um, and I mean, recently America has decided that any vaccine that is recognised by the WHO is good enough for them, and I don't see why Australia can't do the same. Um, even things like Australia not recognising people that have received mixed vaccines. So in many countries, receiving a mixed vaccine was part of the course. So in Canada, that's, that was their policy, right? Everyone got AstraZeneca and Pfizer. Um, those va people that receive those vaccines aren't considered vaccinated in Australia. Mm. And yeah. it's just, it frustrates me to no end because if those people actually do manage to come home through the quarantine system and then they get into Australia, they're not eligible for Australian vaccines because they've already been vaccinated, right? But then they're not eligible for an Australian vaccine certificate because their vaccines aren't recognised. So they're in this sort of limbo where they can't necessarily do anything in the vaccine economy. They can't go to the shops or wherever, you know, depending on what state they're in, they can't do a lot of stuff, but they also can't get vaccinated again. Which means also if the airlines say you have to have had XYZ vaccines to be able to get on the plane, it means they can't travel into state and they can't leave the country again. And I think that that's terrible because it, what basically puts them in the position of doing is lying, right? It tells, it has, it tells them they have to say to the Australian government, no, I haven't been vaccinated. Please give me a vaccine in Australia or two, um, which again is 
potentially unsafe. We don't have scientific evidence that receiving three or even four doses of different vaccine cocktails is safe yet. We don't know that information just yet. And also contributes further to that vaccine inequality that we're seeing all around the world where people who need vaccines and can't get them, even in Australia, um, will have less access because they've been taken by people that have already been vaccinated but the Australian government won't recognise. So just watching all of that unfold from a scientific perspective is just infuriating. Like you, can't, mm. you just wake up every morning to a new headline and you're like, are you fucking serious? <laughs> what now what like ridiculous like loophole are they gonna make us jump through again today because of the way that their policy has been formed it's really frustrating yeah I try not to engage with it too much unless we're about to record a podcast and I kind of have to cram it all in like what Mm. I've missed (laughs) because it's just so like it it can't be a daily part of my life or I'll just Mm -hmm. be miserable and angry all the time and what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. On the whole not recognising Sputnik or Sinopharm, which is probably the bigger issue, really. Because uh, It's like, oh, I mean, we could say this about so many things. Like, okay, if you decided you're going to leave people overseas, then at least do something in recognition of the fact that you've done that. So help Australians overseas get vaccinated because they can't get home or yep. give them proper financial support seeing as you've locked them out yep <laughs> like don't i know lock them, don't lock them out and then create this narrative of they're not really locked out or that it's their fault somehow the gaslighting i know mm. that term gets used a lot these days it's kind of almost lost meaning but like this is textbook gaslighting yep. this is textbook 100%. political gaslighting yeah I know I know I like it it's I agree with you that that term's been thrown around a lot but I also agree with you that's 100% applicable to this situation the number of times we've told there's no problem when we're like every day you create a new problem like Mm. it's not just that there's no problems it's that the problems are getting worse every day (laughs) like you're just making it harder and harder it's And I I think even, you know, even hearing like borders are opening, there's this like immense sense of like, oh my God, it's over. But I I haven't properly allowed myself to like consider the vaccination inequality, you know, And, and just hearing that and knowing that, okay, well, thank God I got a vaccine that has just been announced as approved. So I feel like, oh, okay, I've escaped that one. But like so many other people, I just, my heart breaks for them about it because it's just like they're still in this situation and we have to be so careful not to perpetuate this idea that it's over and we're through it. We have to be so careful not to contribute to the narrative that everything's great now. And like, that's why I think it's still so important for Beck and I to like continue this podcast because we just do not want people at home to think, ah, they can come home, you know, like everything's fine. Like, it's just not that way. And and for the, for the people in Australia, the visa holders who won't be able to leave and come back, like there's still so much inequality. I can feel it pumping through my body. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's still, I mean, this is something we haven't even really properly touched yet, Brie, but I hope that we will, Mm. especially once we can kind of shift the focus a little bit more once residents and citizens start to come home. But like there's still children separated Mm -hmm. from both of their parents. I know. And they're not even like they're teenagers. They're, they're very young children, like four-year-olds. Four-year-olds yeah. are mm-hmm. stuck in mm-hmm. India without their parents. Some I of know. them were even born in Australia. Yeah. It's outrageous. It's and absolutely those people disgusting. And those people do not have a timeline yet, even though we're from Queensland. There is supposedly a state plan as to when we will be able to return. These people have nothing and they are separated from their children. I know. And the fact that also the government 
if they managed to actually figure out a way to get into the hotel quarantine system, the government then said, actually, the parents aren't allowed to be in quarantine with these children. Like what? They want to pay to be in quarantine with their kids they haven't seen in 18 months, 20 months. What is the problem with letting them into that system? It's not like you're using another room. You'll just be, they'll be in the same room. Why can't they like, be in there with their child who is potentially quarantining with a stranger? Like I just, I can't even, I'm not, when we had the virtual vigil and we were hearing those stories, I was trying to sit there as we were live recording and not just immediately burst into tears. It was heartbreaking. Mm. That's the children, which is disgusting and terrifying, but also, by locking people into hotel quarantine, potentially with like abusive partners, right? Like we're putting so many vulnerable people at risk with these systems mm. and they're not going anywhere. Like the Queensland saying that they're going to make these hotel camp and uh, not hotel camps, um, quarantine camps, um, the mainstay for international students in through to 2022, WA that doesn't even want to open their fucking borders. Like those systems aren't going anywhere and we're still putting vulnerable people at risk every day by sort of sticking with them. Mm. It's just like, I, I never want to talk about stranded Australians ever again once this is all over. But also at the same time, I think we really need to have a, a proper look into what happened during this whole debacle i think the government is incredibly liable for like a lot of of damage that's been done it is concerning and i do hope that there's an investigation but sometimes maybe i'm just overly cynical but when i hear people say like this makes no sense and we need to have an inquiry into what went wrong i'm like i don't think that this went wrong on a political level because when things go wrong on a political level, politicians change the policy if they're getting threatened to be voted out, if mm. they feel like their public is turning against them, which is what Scott Morrison did. Yeah. Right? As far as politicians are concerned, it, it, it depends on your measure. Politically, right. this must be successful. I know, and it's gross because that's also one thing that um, frustrates me is that the government has like a, a sort of a duty of care over, over all Australians, right? Whether we're in Australia or we're overseas. Um, and to me, what I find disgusting is that they found it like politically palatable to just abandon not just tens of thousands of people, because we're all aware that tens of thousands, 45,000, that number that's been thrown about recently is like maybe 10% of the people that are actually affected, right? But they found it politically okay to frame that in a way that they they not only didn't seem to have this duty of care over protecting Australians, but they actually, they decided that they don't care about us. They decided mm. that these terrible measures that they had in place were good enough. And I'm not saying that the measures didn't help protect Australia, but I'm not saying at all either that I agree with them and that we couldn't have done things wildly differently that would have been far more beneficial to so many. And Again, it's all gaslighting, right? It's the government, it's Scott Morrison in particular saying we're doing something when you're actually, you're not doing anything, Scott. Scott Morrison hasn't done a single thing for Australian Australians in the last 20 months. The, his national plan, right? The other the other month he released the national plan and it had, you know, at 70% we'll do X, Y, Z, at 80% we'll do blah, blah, blah. The other day, yesterday, I think, Australia reached 74% of the population was double vaccinated and not a single thing on that national plan for stranded Australians has been enacted and you have this complete lack of consensus and wildly different restrictions for the different states and territories and yeah Scott Morrison's going to turn around and say I brought Australians home vote me back in next year like job done tick pat on the back I am you know Australia's Lord and Saviour. Scott Morrison didn't even open the board as Dominic Perrottet did. <laughs> like he's the one, not that I'm saying I'm for him in any way, shape or form, but he's the one that turned around and said, we're opening the borders. And then Scott Morrison went, ah, uh, shit, you stole my thunder. Um, <laughs> now I've got to hold a presser and say, I'm opening the borders. Like it's just, it's a clusterfuck, honestly. Let me go. Is that the same in Ireland or have, has it been a different experience going to a new place during the pandemic? Oh, it has been wild <laughs> because 
I told you, I first came here and there were very, very few cases in Australia. Like there were a couple happening in Sydney. There was a bit of a Christmas shutdown. But really, we were pretty in the clear. Um, and then I came to Ireland that had just like thousands of cases every day before we even have vaccines available. And I was terrified. And it, it slowly dawned on me that the systems obviously were wildly different, but neither was necessarily correct. Like I don't necessarily believe that Ireland did exactly the right thing with their rules and restrictions. And I definitely now don't believe Australia did the right thing with their rules and restrictions either. But I've now sat in Ireland 10 months later and I've watched society here reopen while I've had to then watch everything crumble back home. It's just been this like really weird time. And I just know that like we're living through this hopefully once in a lifetime, but I probably, I don't want to jinx it. This once in a lifetime event, right? And my experiences and the way I have lived through this will never resonate with anyone back home right? They will never be able to feel me on the same level. They'll never get what I went through versus what they went through. Even like my husband, right? Who I talk to almost every day, um, doesn't quite understand because we've had different experiences. He's been in a largely open society and, and blah, blah, blah. And now it's the reverse. Um, so it, it has really shaped the way I felt because yeah, as I said, when I got here, I was originally really terrified. I thought COVID was everywhere. Like I was going pretty crazy <laughs> um, when I first turned up. Um, whereas now, you know, we're reopened. They opened nightclubs up the other day as well. And Australia, uh, not Australia, Ireland. It's like Bloomberg does like a monthly like resilience list of, of or something of, of like how well countries, how good it is to be in certain countries. Um, in, in the world based on like their freedom of movement, their restrictions, their protection, their cases, all that sort of thing. And Ireland for the last two months has been number one on that list, which um, goes to show just like how free we are living here. Yes, we're having a slight uptick in cases, but um, you know, with reopen society as a whole, it doesn't surprise me. Students are back at university, like we're in nightclubs again, we've got bars and pubs open for indoor dining. It doesn't surprise me that cases are going up. Um, but the way that's being sold here is like the government sort of saying, ah, oh, yeah, we're a little concerned. And by going up, I mean, like we were plateaued out at about 1,500 cases a day and now we're sitting at about 2,200 cases a day. Like in the last few weeks, it's gone up to that much. Everyone was kind of fine with 1,500 cases a day. The government was sort of selling it as it's cool. Like it's not necessarily death and hospitalisation. The hospitalisation rate is low. Vaccines are working. Don't be worried. And even now, as the cases have started to rise, the government has said, yeah, this is a little worrying, but it's altogether, not altogether unexpected. Um, vaccines are still working. We are starting our booster program. Like, don't worry. Whereas in Australia, like, what? Queensland got one case and not even Queensland, actually. Tasmania got one case and Queensland went, ah, we're shutting the border today with Tasmania. Like, bam, slammed it closed. And that was hilarious because also the day before, Anastasia, um, Anastasia Perisay, <laughs> Anastasia Palaszczuk had release like a, a bunch of announcements saying that Queensland was open for tourism to South Australia and Tasmania <laughs> like book your holidays today and then the next day they slammed the border close over a single case so I think that the the hysteria back home now has been just magnified to the extreme like I just think that that response is not proportional to the level of protection and it frustrates me because it it demonstrates a mistrust in the vaccines, right? States that are at 80% plus double dosed still have significant restrictions. It, it shows me that the politicians don't trust the vaccines in Australia, whereas the politicians here in Ireland, at least very heavily sort of rely on them and say like, that is your, your bulletproof vest. Like that is your safety blanket. Trust in them, they work. And like, I cannot stress enough just how good the vaccines are. Like getting something above 90% in terms of protection is incredible. I know there's a lot of debate about the flu vaccine, um, whether or not you should get it, blah, 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 whether or not it gives you the flu, which it doesn't. But that only has like a 40% like efficacy level, I think. And no one ever discussed that when they were talking about getting the flu vaccine. Whereas here we're talking about 90% 
the difference between 90 and 95% in terms of protection, like, you know, that is still an incredible level of protection. And yet the government are still selling it as at 80 plus percent double dose at 90 plus percent double dose. Like we are still terrified of what's going to happen when we open up. And I think that it's irresponsible because it's feeding this anxiety and this fear in society back home that is not healthy and it's not helpful. And in fact, it's sowing discontent like, I don't know, did you guys hear about that woman in um, Mount Gambier, I think it was, who tested positive and her car was torched? Um, which is like <laughs> wild, right? But that is not, I don't even necessarily blame the people that did that because they were scared because of what their government told them was going to happen. And I'm now really worried for Australians that are coming home into New South Wales or Victoria that have tested negative before they've, you know, left the country they're in, they're double vaccinated, they're going home and some of them might actually go into remote communities and still later test positive and whether that's because they were positive before they left or they caught COVID on the way home or they got COVID once they got into New South Wales or Victoria is a, is, a, is irrelevant. They're going to get into these communities and they are going to get essentially slaughtered, right? Like you've seen what has happened in Victoria, mm. uh, in Queensland to that guy, that Uber driver that went into Queensland. They've, they've put him on all over the front page and called him public enemy number one. And whether or not what he did was right, I just think that selling the stories of people that have caught a disease, like they're not intentionally necessarily going around as bioweapons. They've just caught a virus that is highly transmissible mm -hmm. and selling them as people that are willfully hurting others to the point where their lives are possibly in danger if they weren't already because they're sick with COVID. Like to the point where people are torching cars and who knows what's going to happen going forward is that is 100% on the politicians and the way that they have sold the narrative of what it is to be sick with this virus. It, yeah, it's true. And it's what happens when you sell this as a moral, uh, a moral imperative or a moral crisis as opposed to a health crisis, public health crisis. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I got COVID in November last year and I remember the fear I had to call my colleague who I had worked with in a school a couple of days earlier and I called her and I was like, I'm so sorry, I didn't know, I've got COVID. And she needed to quarantine for two weeks in her house um, because it had been like direct contact. And I felt so responsible for that. Mm -hmm. and, and that was really horrible. But... She was like, no, do not feel guilty. Like, this is not your fault. You didn't know. I had no idea how I got COVID. Three of three people at the same time, we all got COVID and we have no idea where, how. And that was really frustrating because I was just like, there's no way to explain why I have this. And I'm so sorry that I could have passed it on. Luckily, I didn't pass it on. But I could not imagine that being blown out to where people I don't know are looking at me being like, oh, my God, she went into that school and she's probably infected all the students. And, like, it would be horrific because, right. because I personally, I'm sitting there with COVID going, okay, I don't know how my body's going to react to this. Mm -hmm. I could die. Mm -hmm. I was very scared. Let's let's throw some public shame in. And you know, what a fun few weeks that's gonna be. Like I I am disgusted that yeah. people are being treated that way. I I yeah. And like let's put that public shaming and like torching, for example, into context. Here one, it's again one of those things, Germans known for public shaming. Never. Never, it doesn't matter how shitty the paper would be, would someone be literally named and shamed no in front of the paper? Way. Because that is dangerous. It is dangerous. Yeah. If you catch COVID, even if you are double vaccinated, there's always breakthrough inf infections that can end in severe illness and even death. And the risk is low. But at the same time, you can't help that as someone who's caught, I mean, I haven't had COVID, but I still harbor these fears because who, how can you not, right? you're always worried you don't know what's going to happen to you in your case. Mm -hmm. And so getting it isn't anxiety inducing enough, but then imagine 
the worst case scenario, you do get sick and end up in hospital and you're fighting for your life. And there's a public smear campaign against you, like ending your life in that way. Mm. I don't know how I'm going to go about being home and having, you know, all my friends and family be like, oh my God, what was it like? Blah, blah, blah. Like, it's just, I don't know if I'm going to be able to talk about it to them because it's just going to be so frustrating, right? Like it's, oh, I don't yeah. know. Do. But also, I mean, I've, I've like, I've booked flights home and I think I have been so damaged by this experience that I haven't actually let myself feel any kind of relief. I haven't gone, I'm not, I'm not, I don't feel anything. Like it's just like this empty pit inside me, right? Like I booked flight home, but I'm not necessarily excited or happy. People messaged me when I told them I was coming home being like, oh my God, are you so excited? Like, can't wait to see you, blah, blah, blah. And I don't know if it's this, just this denial inside me that I'm actually going to be able to go home because God knows what's going to happen between now and the middle mm. of December when I fly home, whether or not I actually be allowed on the plane. But it's just like, I've been so damaged by this experience that I feel like I have like almost lost the ability to feel joy. <laughs> yeah, I'm not looking forward to then getting home and facing a new kind of trauma, which is people sort of yeah. denying that my struggle was real or, or whatever. Like, don't yeah. get me wrong, I'm not painting myself as a martyr. Like, I know that people got it worse and I know that it could have been, you know, I could be locked out. But it's just everyone's trauma is unique and individual. And I think that this is this is going to have profound consequences for a long time. Did you, I don't know if you guys have heard, there was a paper published the other day that sort of said that people that survived the earthquake and tsunami in Japan, uh, I want to say in 2013, but don't quote me on that, you could be wrong, um, who were over the age of 65, um, experienced increased rates of cognitive decline over that of what is usually expected. And they, scientists believe it's because of the stress that they experienced at that pivotal time in their lives um, and the sort of intergenerational trauma that was triggering. And that's, that's really key for me, I think, is that the effects of this pandemic are going to last far beyond when it's officially considered over, if it mm. ever does come to that point. And that, that lasting impact on our psyche and on our, you know, cognitive abilities is is going to be profound and I I don't want to say that I'm looking forward to seeing the studies that come out because I you know don't want to see that it's going to negatively impact the rest of our lives but I think it will be interesting to see just how significant the toll has been on the mental health of people that have been so traumatized and, and stranded you know I think that if you do not recognize that there is going to be some long-term implications here then you're living in a fantasy land like mm. We don't have the science about it yet, but I'm willing to bet that it's coming. And mm. it's just incredibly upsetting to think how long this is going to last. And that's just that's just talking about cognitive ability. What about, you know, the people that just will never trust their government again so won't pursue opportunities that they otherwise would, right? A few things that you're feeling, that, saying that you feel numb about going home. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously so much of that is just like not wanting to get your hopes up because something mm. could happen. But mm -hmm. also, perhaps, I'm just going out there, but perhaps it's a bit of like the abusive boyfriend analogy, which other people have used. It's like, yeah. why would you be excited? You're going back to like a government that's been beating you up. And now you actually, unfortunately, have to have a relationship with him because you have a kid with him and you have to fucking see him every now and then. Yeah. Like, why would you be excited about that? Like, I don't know, you guys said in the episode when you uh, played uh, Scott Morrison's speech to oh. Australian Star. I just, like, I was watching that separately, like, when it came out, just thinking, like, are you fucking kidding? <laughs> like, I appreciate it. 
and your fellow Australians don't <laughs> I know everyone goes on about him having an empathy coach and like it was quite apparent during the bushfires right that he just doesn't know he's like a fucking robot like he just does not understand other people's pain at all um which I think, think is a quite important trait in a leader that you like, can empathize but anyway just the mm. fact that that happened he released that message what 18 months after he closed the borders if not like a bit more and just, that was the first time that was the first time mm-hmm. he actually acknowledged that there was trauma and that there was sacrifice being made. And he did it in such a, like, <laughs> just robotic way Pathetic. that it was just it induced more rage than it induced any sense of healing. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, I, can, I can just imagine. I, I sometimes imagine the conversations that must happen in these po- political rooms. And I, I can imagine his empathy coach being like, look, you remember the there are those who are stuck outside it's probably time it's probably time and he's like oh all right get the camera let's figure something someone give me a fucking script yeah 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 I can imagine like oh yeah I've got five minutes to say thanks to them like I haven't cried over this experience for a long time there was a moment at the very beginning of when I got here where I had like a full-blown panic attack on the phone to my husband because our landlord back in Australia told us he was selling our house and I just like freaked out because I didn't know how my husband was going to have to cope with that by himself right like packing up all that Mm. shit finding somewhere to live moving our cats doing this blah 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 and I just freaked out and that was the last time I had like a big cathartic cry about just how fucked this situation is right Mm. and I think I am I feel very as I said emotionless and like a bit of despair at the moment because I just I can't feel that excitement I can't feel those sort of um, highs and lows anymore I'm a bit bit damaged but I am genuinely looking forward to the days where I feel that way again and I think I do need that cathartic release and I'm really hoping I get it from the government back home because I think that is something that I need for myself to heal like I just need to have a big fucking cry just have someone in any position of power just acknowledge not necessarily my experience but just the experience of all stranded Australians just how truly fucked this has been Mm -hmm. it has just been a disaster from day one like every single decision that they have made every announcement they've made it's just all of it's insane (laughs) for me personally I don't think it will be I mean obviously I want people to be like you sacrifice thank you but (laughs) I want an acknowledgement of the inhumanity yeah I want Australia to on anything on refugee issues on climate issues on this just something I want like an Australian federal politician who has some power to get up and say like we have been acting inhumanely as a country yeah like would that be so hard it is it's impossible for us it's impossible yeah I know it's like never gonna happen and as you know what's really funny I've I've been on the old social media the last few months <laughs> with this issue but mm. watching everyone sort of freak out this week about the net zero deal and how it was like just full of bullshit and empty promises <laughs> I just wanted to scream into the void and be like yes <laughs> what the fuck any stranded australian could tell you that was what was going to happen we knew all along like half-baked ideas and empty promises and lack of deliverables that is their modus operandi like of course what the f- if anyone had been paying any attention to our struggles and to the rules and restrictions they're bringing in place that was always going to be the case and it breaks my heart because like we're fucking the environment but like what did you expect <laughs> First of all, it's been very healing for me. This is like free therapy, so love it. Um, <laughs> and I love what you're doing. I love the the fact that you're telling people stories, that you're trying to not only give stranded Australians, you know, um, a sense of, of belonging because um, we're all going through the same but different challenges, but you're also trying to translate that back home to people back home who don't quite understand. So I appreciate that and I'm glad that you're going to, continue with this once the problems have you know been resolved if they do get resolved um so thank you it's been a joy talking to you both so nice to meet you (laughs) you too
Spreading veggie mite 